Nothing you hear in this program constitutes investment advice. It is an expression of opinion only. This is Frisbees, Bulls and Bears. Talking money and markets, what's happening and why. We talk to the experts, the traders, the investors and the companies they're investing in. You're listening to Frisbees, Bulls and Bears with Dominic Frisbee. Welcome to Frisbee's Bulls and Bears with me, Dominic Frisbee. A reminder that you can subscribe to the show by clicking on the subscribe via email button on the left-hand side of your screen. And then every time I upload a new show, you will be notified in your inbox. And that's the only email you'll receive. Now, it's my pleasure in, in today's show to be talking to Tim Price. Tim is a colleague of mine at Money Week. He writes for Money Week, and he's also a director of investment for PFP Wealth Management. Tim uh, was giving an excellent presentation today at the Warwick University Investment Forum, and the title of that um, presentation, Tim, was Managing Wealth in Treacherous Times. And uh, your opening slide was called The Long Emergency. So, so why don't we uh, outline the, the subject of your presentation and then... Uh, we'll talk about some of the content. I, I've been working for 20 years, and it strikes me in, in the capital markets, and it strikes me that we're in a, a situation that's unparalleled. Um, it feels to me like we're at something approaching the end game for conventional economic and monetary history and for the financial system that we've all grown up with. Um, the world has amassed too much debt. The Western economies in particular have amassed too much debt over recent decades. We have a, a global money and currency system that's not backed by anything tangible. And as a result, there's, there's a, there's a, we, we feel there's a sense that just the wheels are starting to fall off the machine. Um, there are any number of things to complain about, but I think it's really that the banking crisis that, that's now a global one uh, is causing all sorts of people just to re-examine the fundamentals of investing. And... Uh, our objective for clients is, is first and foremost just capital preservation and that objective might sound modest in ambition but I'm, we're finding it extraordinarily difficult to operate in these markets. Well, capital preservation in, in 2011 would, have, would be deemed a good year, I suppose, if you, if you, if you uh, ended the year with as much money as you began it. Yeah, the, the phrase in the industry is flat is the new up, so uh, <laughs> we, we'd be subscribers to that. Very good. So... Um, your, your next slide was, was the developed world is bust. Yeah, I, th I think this, is, uh, this gets to the heart of the problem that uh, although the authorities can't say it, I mean, the authorities can't say that banks, for example, are insolvent because if you even approach that territory, then you, you, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So everyone has to go through this charade that everything's well, everything's orderly and, and move along, nothing to see. But you look at, to give you a sense of the sort of bizarre nature of the modern investment world, you look at the U.S. Now, the U.S. has a, an on-balance sheet national debt of, let's say, $16 trillion. These are huge sums that are completely unbelievable sums that the human mind simply can't process. That doesn't even take account of, of unfunded liabilities. But let's just look at the, the, the sort of the official figure. So $16 trillion. Um, that debt almost certainly is never going to get paid back. And yet, um, as far as in international investors are concerned, U.S. Treasuries are the safest haven in the world. If someone can explain the logic to me, I'd, I'd love to be able to understand it. 
uh, well, behavioural mad fools. Quite, quite, quite possibly, <laughs> but uh, it, it, it is staggering. So there's one quote that we we use in the presentation that that may may have some bearing on the the current situation because we, we, if nothing else, we have been here before. So there's a quote from from Cicero that this was this was apparently dates back to 55 BC, and he said the national budget must be balanced, the public debt must be reduced. The arrogance of the authorities must be reduced if the nation doesn't want to go bankrupt. Now, I asked uh, at Warwick here today, I asked if anyone in the audience was a historian or a classicist, and by all accounts, just about everybody in the room was some form of economist or studying economics. Um, but the Roman state persisted, not, notwithstanding Cicero's concerns, for another two or 300 years. So the amazing thing about these, these dysfunctional markets and, and dysfunctional economies is that they can persist way longer than anyone expects. Another example would be the experience of the, you know, the former Soviet Union, which notwithstanding the fact that the whole model was broken and, and it didn't work and it was fundamentally corrupt, lasted 70 years before it completely imploded. So although we think the situation's quite grave, it could persist like this for quite some time because you've got central banks printing money and printing money and printing money, and you know, that can buy you quite a bit of time. Yeah, and uh, I, I would agree with that. And uh, you, you know, the, the policy of can kicking that uh, that, that yeah. Now, um, I, I want to talk about your slide. What we know about bank crises, because that does give us a bit more timing uh, of the kind of unfolding of all of this. So, so why don't we discuss, um, you know, the timing of bank crises and what we know, and and also, you know, where that material was sourced from. Sure. This this. Uh, what, what's becoming a sort of seminal book of our times, analysis of our times for for the financial crisis is um, Rogoff and Reinhardt's study of, of fairly uh, encyclopedic study of, of previous banking banking crises through history and some of the statistics. And be- bearing in mind this, what what seems to be the case is that most previous bank crises have been sort of localized single nation, single country events. I think what's different about this time round is that we've rarely, if ever, had a, a banking crisis that's been so global in scale. So in other words, it's drawn so many different countries uh, internationally from around uh, and sort of polluted the well for all of them. Um, but if you just take the, the Rogoff and Reinhardt analysis from that was published in 2009, on average, um, when it, with a bank crisis, you have government debt rising uh, to the order of about 90% uh, in, the, in the subsequent three years. You have stock markets... Okay, let me just stop you there. Sure. Government debt rises by about 90% in the first three years after the crisis. Now, that's, that's on average, and that's already happened. But yeah. I, I, it, although you've got some, um, if you like, notable exceptions and some sort of uh, noteworthy exceptions, like maybe the UK, where the coalition is at least attempting to sort of massage down um, the debt burden through austerity, the, the, the much talked about, though perhaps not not yet so visible austerity. Um, the, the bottom line is that, that Europe, Europe in a larger context, for example, doesn't really seem to have grasped the nettle at all. Certainly European politicians don't seem to have done. So uh, if anything, debt burdens, notwithstanding the, the sort of the public uh, iteration, the public rhetoric on the topic is actually expanding still. Okay, next um, next. Uh, next thing that happens in a, in a banking crisis. So yes, yeah, so that typically from the, the Rein, Reinhardt and Rogoff study is you have a, a fairly significant bear market for stocks. So on their figures, it's something like a loss of 60% over the next three to four years. Again, these are average figures. And the reason we're concerned 
uh, about capital preservation for clients is that we think this crisis is more significant in scale, in, in, in its fundamental essence, than what's gone before it. So the average figures may be understating the degree of pain that may still be to come. OK, so stocks lose 56% over 3.4 years. Now, if this um, banking crisis began in 2007 and the equity markets made their high in late 2007. I mean, we got that stock fall, but then we got this incredible rally but from 2000. Yeah, we, then we had sort of quantitative easing inspired recovery. And I think this, this also gets to the heart of the problem uh, that you can describe as maybe the Greenspan put, that central banks feel obligated to support financial markets, specifically stock markets. So uh, my thesis would be that the stock market never became cheap after the, the dot-com bust of you know, 2000, 2001. It should have done, but it never became cheap because then you know, Fed, the Federal Reserve slashed interest rates and in the process of doing so created another bubble in property prices, which then exploded and led to an even greater mess to, for everyone else to clear up. Uh, if, if the central banking authorities had moved aside and simply allowed free, market, free markets to operate – then ideally we would have had a proper correction um, earlier um, in the millennium and, and it wouldn't be in the state we're in. But as it is, the way central banks and politicians operate is that they always attempt to protect um, markets. We had that stimulus, quantitative easing it's been called, monetary stimulus, which buoyed stocks and, and led to a fairly dramatic recovery. But uh, I would argue that now equity markets are probably, at least in, in, from a sort of UK and European perspective, they're probably delusional. Uh, money printing is not wealth creation. Money printing is simply inflationary uh, at, at its root. Uh, it is simply inflating the monetary base. That money tends to leak out quickly into the, into the stock market. It's also leaked out into certain commodity markets as well. But the bottom line is if the equity market – uh, I don't think we're seeing a, a fair market. I don't think we're seeing a fair market in stocks or in bonds. Everything is being distorted through central bank um, uh, policy. There's no fair market in anything, so it's very difficult to establish a, you know, a, a fundamental value for more or less any financial asset now. Okay, next point, unemployment. Uh, well, as we know now, as we can see just from the context of the UK, unemployment is on the up, and that's problematic to the extent of nothing else, that it's it's going to give rise to a, a higher welfare uh, burden, a benefits burden. Um, but from the Reinhold and Rogoff study, it's risen by something like 7% on average over, in their in their example, typically five years. Now, I don't think we're, we're yet five years into this. I think that the crisis probably lasts longer because of the severity of the damage. Um, that tends to suggest a particularly bleak outlook for, for employment here, here and, in, and in Europe. Yeah, I mean, how much has unemployment already risen? And the, the problem with unemployment is a bit like inflation, is that the, uh, the figures are massaged, so you don't really get a real figure. But how, how much has unemployment risen? Or, I mean, how much further have we got to go? I, I, I think the process of adjustment has... Pro- unfortunately, I think that process of adjustment has only just started. So, I, you know, I don't know where we are now, but I, I can see us, you know, just in the UK, the unemployment roster reaching 3 million again. Okay, next one. House prices drop 36% in real terms over five years. Except in central London. <laughs> well, we've, we've had it. We've had, I, I suppose we've had the house price drops in the States. That's, in a way, that's what caused the banking crisis, or they happened with each other. In the UK, what have we had? 15% falls from the 2007 high? 
10, I'm led to believe. 10. But, but probably, probably this, this is worse, worse to come. But in central London, we've had 20% rises. Yeah, central London does seem to be a, a sort of a rather, a rather unique state. But as, as we were discussing a little earlier today here at Warwick, um, the, the, the prime movers behind central London property um, it would appear to be somewhat price-insensitive buyers who don't necessarily even live in those properties most of the time. They don't. I mean, central London is a ghost town at night. Nobody lives there. And, uh, in fact, Jonathan, uh, who I interviewed earlier, was was describing some of the houses in central London that he's visited, and he just says they're empty inside. In fact, Jonathan's sitting there. Would you agree with that, Jonathan? I would. I think it's very localised, though. It's a big difference when you go from you know, from Chelsea to Knightsbridge into Notting Hill and, and out to Shepherd's Bush. It's a big difference. But, yeah, the trend is very clear, and it's a whole number of people, different types of people coming here, people trying to es- escape problematic countries like Greece. I mean, a lot of Greeks have been buying London property as a, as a safe haven from the impending Euro crisis. Um, it's just gradually driving, it's hollowing out the middle of the very central part of London, absolutely. I suppose the best thing that can happen to central London property in terms of if you want it to fall is a, is a strong pound. Uh, that isn't. That wouldn't be front and centre of our investment thesis for the medium term. Uh, In other words, you don't see a strong pound I happening. Don't see a strong pound happening. Uh, as I was, again, as we were discussing earlier, I, mean, I think currency markets are a, a particularly difficult asset to to, to call. Um, but if one's going on the basis of debt loads and on the basis of likely economic growth, and also the fact that the coalition would almost certainly deeply value. Uh, a weaker pound, if, if in, for no other reason than to, to help boost the, the fortunes of our much diminished export sector, uh, I, we just can't see it happening. I think there's, there's, there's more, from our perspective, more reasons than not to be wary of sterling. Okay, uh, so next one, GDP falls. Why don't you read the next one out? Yeah, GDP on the, the Reinhardt Rogoff study typically falls by something like 9 to 10% cumulatively over the first two years. We've had that, and again, we've had, we've had some stimulus and we've had sort of a, a recovery, but it, it feels to us as if the UK is tipping back into recession or, or certainly very minimal growth. And I think also that a, a recession in the eurozone is now more or less a racing certainty for 2012. Um, the average duration of bank crises. Yeah, this is from a study from the Bank of England, and they they uh, studied 33 uh, systemic crises between 77 and 1977 and 2002. Can you believe? And this, I suppose, if there's anything positive from this, it's that if you've ever missed a bank crisis, you don't have to wait too long for the next one to come along. They, they you know, they're like buses. Um, <laughs> So average duration, 4.3 years. Again, our perspective would be that uh, we're now, say, three or four years into this one. But because of the size uh, of the mess, um, this is likely to be above average. So I, this, this one could, go, could yet last for a few more years, sadly. Is there not an argument to suggest that this one is ending? Uh, no, I see no evidence for that. I mean, we, we are, you know, believers in, in the, the merits of gold for, for reasons of sound money, for inflation protection, particularly for currency protection in a, in a, a world in which everyone's trying to depreciate their currencies. Um, and we would argue that all of the fundamental reasons for buying and holding gold are even more pronounced now than they were even only a matter of months ago. The gold price, uh, as expressed in nominal dollars, hasn't necessarily reflected that. But no bigger picture, we'd still argue that um, the gold's best days are almost certainly ahead of it. Every every reason for wanting uh, protection against uh, 
dark economic things and particularly uh, instability in the banking sector. Th- those reasons are still very much there. And indeed, I think they've got, got worse over the last six or 12 months, not least in the context of the Eurozone crisis. OK, let's look at the next uh, thing. This is again from the Bank of England. Uh, yeah, so non-performing loans um, shoots up, and we've seen some of that. But I think again that there may still be more wood to chop on the part of the the banks. This, what this, does non-performing loans mean? Uh, well, non-performing loans, effectively loans that banks have made that you know that they're not going to get that those loans aren't going to get properly serviced because the borrowers are, are basically at uh, death's door or worse. Okay, so, so they're, are they going to get defaulted written, on, or, or just to be written off in some form? Okay. So, um, you know, all of the statistics that the Bank of England uh, has shown for average crises, you know, we've probably seen at least as bad um, over the course of the last few years. But for us, there's no certainty that this is this has automatically been uh, you know, been rectified. It, the, the difficulty in terms of investment markets, that we can't really trust the banks because these these entities have been deemed too big to fail. Um, we'd have we'd nurse the concern that, that the UK with the likes of RBS and Lloyd's is replicating the example of Japan where you have zombie banks that instead of being put to the sword or fully nationalized uh, just in, inhabit this sort of middle ground where you know they're getting stimulus money coming in at the top but they're not willing to lend it out to SMEs or to households and so the households don't even want to borrow and the anyway. households probably don't want to borrow because they're more interested in paying down debts so you know the banking uh, the banking system the monetary system is broken uh, it would be better for more or less everybody involved apart from the bankers you know, to put some of these zombies just out of everyone else's misery. Um, what about if you have money with the bank and this bank was put to its, you know, put to, let go the way nature wants it to go? Well, there's a difference between depositors and, and shareholders uh, and, and bondholders for that matter. Um, I, I think in a fairer world then. Um, again, there's, there's some, something artificial about you know having these businesses persisting as, as listed businesses, as, 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 as equity businesses, because I'm not sure the businesses are worth anything in, in some cases. Um, so what I think would have been altogether fairer for everybody, particularly the taxpayer, would have been for those for those banks that are in, functionally insolvent to be nationalised. Equity holders and bondholders get wiped out, but depositors you know depositors still have their their money effectively underwritten or guaranteed by the government. Okay. Um, Cumulative fiscal costs of banking resolution are whopping 7.8% of GDP without currency crisis or 17.4% with. Yeah, I think we we can agree that, again, historically it's been a bad experience and and this time around probably going to be worse experience than average. The the last of the Bank of England figures that we we quote is that two-thirds of all banking crises result in a currency crisis. Now, in the terms of the Bank of England study, that's defined as a 25% fall against the dollar. But uh, we would argue that as and whenever the, the eurozone ever gets its act together, then the pendulum of investor interest swings to the states, which is also the proximate cause of the crisis to begin with. So, uh, firstly, I think we will see, you know, again, ongoing depreciation of currencies. But I, think, I don't think that ends in Europe. I think that goes on ultimately to the US dollar itself. Now, but the pound has already, has already fallen by 25% against the US dollar. So we've, we've had that. We've had it, but there's no no automatic reason why we don't get a bit more. And as I say, it's in the interests of the the, the government and many many you know exporters to uh, you know to see a, a weak sterling even from this point. Okay, I'm not as bearish on the pound as you are, but there we go. Um, now l- let's come to this next chart. We've only got a couple of minutes left, Tim. But uh, you describe this chart as 
the, the most important chart you'll see this year. Now, let me just dis- describe it for um, f- for those listening. There's a, a horizontal a horizontal line that represents naught, and uh, on the left hand side, above the horizontal line, are various countries, and on the right hand side, below the horizontal line, are various other countries, and in the middle, kind of just below the horizontal line, uh, are a few other countries. Um, now, you're going to describe what that horizontal line is and what it means and how it determines how you should be investing. Sure. In a, in a nutshell, um, the chart shows you net foreign assets uh, of a, a number of countries uh, as a percentage of the size of their economy. So there are countries out there. What is net foreign assets? Net foreign assets is the totality of government plus corporate plus household assets. And why are we looking at foreign assets? Uh, the best example to use is the UK itself. The UK will never realistically struggle to service its sterling-denominated debts because it can always print more. Now, that's fine for sterling. They're not, well, this is fine for, for sterling uh, in, in the context of bondholders or, or for, for you know, the Bank of England, but it's uh, a problem when we've also borrowed in other currencies. So the UK's borrowed in dollars. Since we, don't, since, we don't, since we can't print dollars, it's important that we have a, a variety of foreign assets as part of our sovereign balance sheet to, to tide us through times when, for example, we've got foreign borrowings. So if you look at net foreign assets for any country, they, they show you probably more, more representatively how creditworthy those countries are. And the bottom line is that there's a small number of highly creditworthy countries in the world that have huge surpluses of net foreign assets. And those are countries like Singapore, Hong Kong, the United Arab Emirates, Qatar, and so forth. And then you've got a Norway. middle... Norway. Norway's in there as well. Switzerland's in there as well. And then you've got a middle ground where you've got slight, you know, small liabilities, but not, not huge, but small liabilities. That includes the UK and the US. And then you've got a, a rather a rather more desperate sort of uh, basket case um, number of uh, countries where they don't have assets, net foreign assets at all. They only have big net foreign liabilities. And we'd argue those countries are the sort of countries where you simply don't want to be lending money to them or, or holding their debt. And tell us what those countries are or some of them. Well, to give you an idea, and some of these are, we, know, we know historically already the case, but I mean the far outlier on that on this chart is Iceland, but we know that's got problems. The, the next one along from Iceland is Greece. You know, enough said. Um, but you've also got countries there, a lot of Eastern European countries. I was surprised to see New Zealand. New Zealand there. and Australia are there. Yeah, New Zealand often takes people by surprise. I I'm no expert on New Zealand, but I suspect that that may reflect that New Zealanders simply have been unable to run a balanced budget for, for a long period of time. OK, and we should be... Uh, buying the bonds and the currencies of those countries that are above the line. Absolutely right. That's our, our base case thesis. So we would argue that in a, in a deleveraging world, money is going to flow from the poor quality uh, debtor nations to the high quality creditor nations. So if you were going to trade this from the perspective, say, of a, of a hedge fund, of a long short fund, then you'd basically be buying the Singapore dollar and you'd be shorting, if not the euro, then maybe currencies like the Turkish lira. Very good. Okay, Tim. Well, it's been a real pleasure talking to you, and uh, it was an excellent presentation. And um, uh, the, I mean, is there anything else you want to add from the second half of your presentation? We, we, we've talked for a while, and, and I mean, you, you were kind of very pro-gold in the second half yeah, of your no, presentation. Yeah, the only thing I'd add for anyone that doesn't have gold is, is to have some gold, because it probably is the finest currency to hold right now at a time of widespread currency debauchery. Very good. And, and Tim, do you have a, a website that you'd like to, the name of which you'd like to give out if anyone wants to get in touch with you? 
Uh, there's the company website, which is www.pfpg.co.uk. Um, that's probably as good as any. And why don't you give your newsletter a plug as well? Uh, yeah, I do. Uh, I, I do a, a fortnightly subscription newsletter uh, called the Price Report, and that's done in conjunction with Money Week. Very good. Well, Tim Price, thanks very much for talking to us uh, with such great lucidity and passion and doom and gloom. Tim Price, thank you very much. Thank you. Frisbee's Bulls and Bears is presented and produced by Dominic Frisbee. To discuss the markets and have your say, why not visit our forum at globaledgeinvestors.com. That's globaledgeinvestors.com. To join our mailing list so you can be updated as soon as a new show is posted, please email info at dominicfrisbee.net or simply subscribe through iTunes. 